All right, thanks everybody. I'm Simon Jackman, uh, Professor of Political Science and the CEO of the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney. Thanks for coming out so bright and early on a, what turns out to be a very busy day in um, Australian politics and hence media. Um, um, before I go any further, I, I will acknowledge that uh, the University of Sydney and indeed this uh, CBD part of the University of Sydney uh, stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people part of the Aura Nation, uh, and we honour uh, elders past, present and future who may be with us or uh, part of the university community. Um, it's great to be in conversation uh, this morning with the New York Times. We've got uh, Stephen Dunbar-Johnson immediately to my left, who's president uh, for the International Business Division uh, of the New York Times. Uh, Stephen's been in that role uh, since 2013 and prior to that has had a long career international media, uh, in particular at the International Herald Tribune, uh, where he was there from uh, 2008 before going to the Times in late uh, 2013. Uh, to his left uh, is Claire McFarland, uh, the director of our Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program. But more importantly, today brings Claire back to her first love, <laughs> media. Uh, before uh, Claire came to work at a think tank, she had a lot of roles uh, going back uh, to um, uh, Fairfax, uh, helping stand up the Finns uh, foray into digital, uh, back in the day as it were, but has worked at Optus and Telstra and also the uh, uh, senior level in the uh, Commonwealth Department of Communications. And so before coming to run this program for us, which does have a, a big digital emphasis in it, uh, Claire has plenty of industry and government experience to draw on and, and will lead the conversation with Stephen today. I won't say much other than to say that there's only about 18 reasons we're interested in hearing uh, from the New York Times when, when, uh, when, when a high profile visitor from the, from, from the Times is in town and we're delighted for these opportunities. Um, for a US Studies Centre, you know, what's our mission? Our mission is to educate Australians about the United States. One of the ways that happens, of course, uh, most Australians learn about the United States through media. Uh, and so understanding that mediation of the United States, that representation of the United States that comes through um, elite media in particular, is, is core business for us. Uh, and um, uh, not only that, but if we're a US study centre operating in Australia, one of our things is to talk about the privileged place that American media enjoys in the American political system, with the New York Times at the head of the queue, quite frankly, the prominent role the Times has played over the decades uh, in, in breaking big stories in the United States and holding governments to account um, and indeed, that's a role that goes on. Um, we could go on and on and on about that. Um, I'm interested in the Trump bump internationally. It's not just the, that's something we're seeing in Australian media and certainly of great relevance to us as a US study center. Our work has, has been never in more demand. Uh, and, and also just, you know, I know uh, you're the leader of the international group, but, but just how the pressures I gather that are on the Times to be the the paper of the loyal opposition, as it were, inside the United States, and, and, and indeed how that may even filter into the international business. But I'm not leading the conversation, <laughs> Claire is. Uh, oh, thank you so much for your time this thank morning. You. Thanks thank to you all for coming. Claire, Stephen, thank over to you. Thank Thanks. You. Thank you so much. Um, and Stephen, so great to meet you. And I, um, I, I was really excited about this, and not the least because um, what I want to have a discussion about is business models and media business models and how those have shifted and changed. And, you know, the first time I met somebody from the New York Times was in the year 2000. Um, 
And I thought, and it, it, in terms of the way in which media has changed over that, I thought it's kind of worth uh, taking a step back. Um, it was 2000. Um, I think the New York Times had just brought in a new uh, sign-up model. So you had to sign up. You had to give your email address to get access to the content. I was here at the Financial Review and was um, leading the, I was the online um, editor because there was no mobile then. There was no mobile content um, in, at, that, at that point in time. Um, and so this is how things have changed. I don't feel that old. I don't know um, uh, <laughs> I do. where the years have gone. <laughs> but um, but what, it, what it kind of makes me think of is how things have shifted so much. At that time, newspapers were very much in the, the kind of the city that they were part of. Um, and now there is this, um, this global kind of footprint for media. And so what I wanted to ask you was um, to reflect a little bit on that. Um, New York's a city of 8 million people. Mm -hmm. It's about um, uh, Australia's only kind of three times bigger than that population. Um, what is it? Uh, Australians are well-known adopters of technology. And I think um, when we look at the kind of advertising per capita in Australia expenditure, it's quite high. Is that one of the reasons why the New York Times is in Australia, or are there bigger kind of reasons for this? Well, firstly, I'd like to, I mean, people ask me, so why, why have you opened a, a bureau in Australia? It's, it's a question that I, 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 always surprises me, um, frankly. I mean, for me, the question is, why has it taken us so long to open a bureau in, in, in Australia? Um, it makes, look, we have, we have bureaus in Tokyo, we have bureaus in Seoul, we have Shanghai, Beijing, uh, Taipei. We, we, we are all over and down in Jakarta. Why on earth would we not have a bureau in, in Sydney? I mean, it's, it's taken us too long, in my view, to have a bureau here. It is an obvious market for the New York Times because of the close affinity that Australia has with the United States as, as one obvious one. It is an obvious market for us given how important it is for us now. Um, we are a global news organization. We aspire to be a global news organization. In fact, I would argue that our future is dependent on us being a global media organization. And therefore, we need to report on the world. Um, we need to explain what's happening around the world. And we also need to be help to explain to our global audience what's happening in Australia. Um, so if it's for all those reasons mm -hmm. we're here. And I'm, I, I, I'm slightly, frankly, ashamed that it's taken us so long to, to put a bureau in here. In terms of the, um, the advertising situation in Australia, because I think that that's something that's perhaps not well understood, that Australia kind of punches above its weight in terms of advertising. Is that a, was that a, is that a driver for the New York Times and the Australian market, or is it more about the... the yeah, the no, it, not really. I mean, the, the, I mean, advertising is always important, but frankly for us it's become less, mm -hmm. less important. Um, and let me, let me explain. I mean, back in, back in 2011 when we put up the paywall, um, we did so at that time because we'd just come out of the financial crisis and the, the, the New York Times was really badly affected by that. We had our own debt issues, there was existential questions about our ability to, to continue. Um, and we were faced by the obvious, that the financial crisis really shone a light on the fact of the secular changes mm -hmm. that were happening in the industry. And it became increasingly clear to us that we simply had to find another revenue stream other than advertising. Yeah. At a time, though, back then, when advertising was still the main yeah. source of revenue. But you could see quite clearly that the print model was broken mm. and was going to continue to decline. 
And therefore, the, the existential, so overused word, but I'll use, keep using it now in this context, at the time was how do we maintain, and this is still the question we, we wrestle with every day, how do we maintain a newsroom in, here in New York and around the world? Um, back then it was 1,400 women and men. Today it's six, close to 1,600 women and men producing our content. But how do we, and that's expensive. Mm, yes. I mean, uh, we, we still have bureaus in Baghdad. We have bureaus in Kabul. We have bureaus in Islamabad. We have bureaus in difficult places where just maintaining the security of the team is extremely expensive. Baghdad, um, it's probably a little less now, but uh, at the peak it was a million dollars just to secure the, the team there, just that one bureau. And then multiply that across all the others I mentioned. It's, it's a very expensive business covering the world. So how are we going to do that in a, at a time when our main revenue source, which is a very, a very profitable newspaper, is you see a, a steady decline? So that's why we, we and, and the, you can't underestimate the polemic that was going on at the time where people in the building, in the New York Times building, a lot of very strong voice saying, we cannot put up a paywall. It is going to be advertising driven. It's about eyeballs. It's about scale. The genie's left the bottle. People won't pay anymore. And um, so there was, it was a really difficult decision. Um, but it was the right decision um, because we are where we are now. Um, we have a very solid stream of revenue. And I think when, when that decision was made, the, the, the belief was that we had to find a model that was going to allow us to, to, to continue to have large scale for the website and allow a lot of people. So we had a, so a very porous wall in order to maintain the advertising. Um, and it was really penalizing, for want of a better word, the loyalists who because at the start, you had 20 free articles. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's a lot of articles yeah. that people... But the loyalists were quickly getting through those 20 and then going, shit, do I really have to pay? And they were not happy about it, but they did, because they, 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 it, for them, they, it, was, it was required reading. And so very quickly, we got to uh, 700,000, I think it was, subscribers. Um, and, but, but at the time, and we, main, we, we maintained the advertising revenue. Mm. Um, but since then... Um, our, our thinking has crystallized. This is a very long response to your initial question, but uh, our, our thinking has crystallized around we don't know where the advertising market's going. Um, we, we, we really don't. We, we, we certainly believe that print, whilst we think that our print business is going to be around for quite a long time and it's still very healthy in terms of its profitability, its profitability is declining. Um, but we're, we're, we're managing to... To, to replace and a bit more that lost revenue through digital subscriptions. Yeah. And our advertising is hold, hold, holding up quite well, but we do not know where the advertising market is going, and we do not want to be dependent on the vagaries of the advertising mm. market. And clearly, the social, the, 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 the platforms are taking a big bite of that. Um, so our, our thinking is we absolutely have to build a subscription yeah. business and continue to build that subscription business. Um, and I mean, I can talk forever about it, but I, I'll stop. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you, and it's kind of related to the subscription business because it's um, it's around the distribution um, of of the New York Times, and so so one of the things I've I've noticed, and correct me if I'm wrong, is um, that New York Times has said yes to Medium as a platform for distribution, but no to Apple News Plus. And I'm wondering um, what the kind of drivers around that kind of 
th that kind of decision is? Is it, is, it, is it about the audience that you can reach through those mechanisms? Is it about the revenue models that are offered? Is it something else? It's a bit of both. Um, I, I think for, 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 for but essentially, we want people within our ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't really want them on other platforms. Mm. We want them with us. At the same time, we recognize a lot of that the, 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 they are very important drivers to our platform. Um, so with Apple News, we're, we're, we're interested in Apple News. We're looking, we're looking at what they're doing, but we don't... I mean, I think essentially doing journalism today, as I just said earlier, is, is expensive. And at a time where in the United States of America, there are journalists are losing their jobs faster than coal miners. There are, mm. there are about half as many journalists in the United States um, now as there were in, in 2000. Um, and it's not just in the United States, it's everywhere. If you look in, I, I'm based now in the UK. Um, I've been out of the UK for 10 years, but I'm back there now. And regional media is dead. If not dead, mm. it's dying. Mm. Um, and this is really bad news. Um, it, it, it is, it, it, we, we think it's very important to have a plurality of views, not just the New York Times. We, we think it's very important that media is successful, mm. journalism is successful. Um, for, for us, it's, it's great for us that the Washington Post is, 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 is got its mojo back. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's important for society. Any of us that believe that, that, that a society is, is democracy is, is lubricated by, by a, free, a free press, and I think, I guess most people in this room do. If you don't, let's, we'll have a discussion <laughs> later. Um, it's, it's really important that, um, that it's successful. Now, a Apple are asking to take 50%. Huge. I mean, we, I, we just don't think that that's mm. right. Mm. Um, and anyway, we don't, we're not sure. So we're going to look at what's happening mm. with Apple. We're, we're going to, they may well be successful. Um, they've got a billion handsets. They've got a billion handsets. They've got, we're a little pimple. As far, but we think that we can, get, we want people in our own ecosphere. Mm. So we're going to watch and see. We, yeah. I, we think we, we, we have the space to watch and, uh, and yeah. see where it goes. But so we have a, a um, sort of slightly complex, like most publishers, I think, relationship with with the platforms. Yeah. Um, the one that we have, where where we mo most lean in, I guess, um, and that's because they're very reciprocal. Is it's not just because you're here, but uh, Google is is by far and away the more, the most responsive to us. They're, I think they're the most sensitive to this challenge of how to. Um, how to sustain the, the, the golden egg yep. um, that, that we're laying for, for, for the platforms and the content. Yep. Um, we are providing, producing, at our expense, the content that people are consuming on these platforms. So I don't think 50% is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, um, as Simon mentioned before, I came out of um, mobile, business, mobile um, content businesses and, and um, the, it wasn't 50% in terms of the... Um, Apple stores then it was, the, it was around 30%. So that's a really interesting shift in terms of the, um, the value perhaps that Apple is placing on what they're bringing to the, to the table. But 50% yeah. seems, seems yeah. you know, very large. And you touched on this, this um, on two things that I wanted to ask you about. Um, in, and it's in, I don't want to put you on the spot about this, but, but in Australia, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, the ACCC, um, has been doing an inquiry, it's called the, the, their Digital Platforms Inquiry, and they released their kind of initial findings in December. And the kind of two clear themes that come out of that is that, is, as you picked up on, the, 
recognising that news and journalism is a, pu is a public good. And, um, and, you know, that's interesting because it kind of puts it in sharp uh, contrast to the uh, narrative that comes from the White House um, sometimes. Um, but, uh, but it also recognises that the digital, um, the digital platforms like Google and Facebook have had stunning success in their commercial models and, have cap and are capturing the 80% of the growth in, that's happening in digital advertising. Um, so and you talked a little bit about the, the kind of gateway nature um, um, of those. Um, how do you, and, and the partnership that you've seen around, around that, how, how do you see that, that evolving? And, and it'd be great to hear a little bit more about the kind of relationship as it's been evolving between the, the publishers and the, the, those kind of distribution platforms, Google in particular, and Facebook. I, I get a lot of Facebook um, New York Times articles yeah, I look, I, as I said before, I think, how, how do we how see it evolving? I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I bluntly. I, and I think we need to worry and worry, uh, uh, worry over our own knitting is, mm -hmm. is, is, is I think, mm -hmm. the view that we have with it. Look, it, it's a reality. They, a lot of our traffic is driven through these yeah. platforms, and therefore that's good. The challenge for us is to is not really to worry about, it's to talk with them, work at this, make, establish relationships which we think are, are work, mm -hmm. working. I mean, for example, with Google talking about how we can connect more effectively with, with potential subscribers of the New York Times, mm -hmm. uh, how we can work with data science, all that's really useful and important to us. But really, fundamentally, we, again, worry about our own knitting. And what does that mean today? It means journalism. Yeah. in journalism that works in today's world. So the, the fundamentals of journalism have not changed. Mm. Um, it's about deep quality, rigorous reporting. But the, how we express the journalism has and is and will change. And by that I mean, uh, with, for example, audio today is a hugely powerful medium which we stumbled upon. We've, our our, our, our um, podcast, The Daily, mm. has been downloaded over 9 million times. Mm. Uh, it was the most downloaded um, uh, um, I, um, on, on iTunes, yeah. um, podcast on iTunes, uh, last, last year. It, it is listened to between by up to 2, 3 million people a day. Um, and what's interesting about the daily is that it's, if you look at the age profile of the people listening to it, a um, significant number of them are, are, are under 30. Yeah. And it's allowing us to get to younger readers. It's allowing us to get to many more female readers, which is very important to us as well. And um, what it does is it sort of takes away some of the, the, the gray mystery of the New York Times. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and it's, it, it allows people to sort of to see how how the, get under in the engine room and see how the thing is made. Um, and there's a sort of empathy, empathetic quality to, to the daily. So that's a hugely, that's a new medium for us. Um, and it, it's really working. Mm. Then there's, we're going to be rolling out a TV show in, uh, which has been bought by uh, FX and Hulu in the United mm -hmm. States. And that's a, a nice deal for us. And it's, it's, it's going to be a weekly um, a, a weekly news program uh, on the New York Times. It's similar to the Daily, except for weekly and visual with high production qu uh, quality. Um, and the point there is is that, but those we can do those things because we're producing yeah. great journalism. Yeah. So if you've got women and men out in the field doing good work, great work, there are different ways today that you can you can express it mm. on different platforms, and that's fantastic. 
Um, and so we're very excited about that. And we're more concerned about thinking about those opportunities. Again, fundamentally based on good journalism, which is why we're investing. Good journalism is good business. It's mutually reinforcing, which is why we're going to keep investing in journalism. Um, we, our newsroom, as I mentioned earlier now, is we have 16, close to 1,600 women and men in our newsroom, um, which is the largest it's ever been. Um, and we are going to be continue to expand internationally because we need to. Uh, we need to report on a, a, a very complex world. Um, and the other issue that we've got to work on, which is we, we've got a long way to go, is on the user experience. Um, it's my, one of my biggest occupations is, is thinking about it's all very well producing great, great stuff. The reality is, is that most people come to us on, on their, their mobile device. And that presents some real challenges um, because you've got this piece of real estate uh, which is rather limited. And in a Trump cycle, we can come on to Trump, but you've got a, you've got sometimes you, you have to, might have to wade through 11 or 12 packages before you get to anything that's non-American. Um, now, right at the peak of Trump, that may have been okay, but when you're, for us, it was great for the bottom of the funnel where you have folks who are deeply, deeply engaged in America, so we're harvesting them very quickly. But as you go up the tunnel, there are, there, there are a lot of international readers we have who are certainly interested in, in what's happening in America. They're coming to the times of that, but they also, what, they're really engaged in what's happening around the world. And if we can't readily surface content that is relevant to them, that becomes a challenge. So a lot of what I'm concerned about is how do we get much better at recognizing where people are um, uh, geographically and who they are without getting too spooky or well in about it, but, but so that we can better serve them. Um, and that's a big challenge. So the, the platforms, where, where can we have an, a relationship which is mutually beneficial? Um, but we don't want to be screwed. Yeah. Um, and but most of the focus is not getting too worried about this, but just focusing on what we can affect. And that leads nicely onto something else that I want to ask you about, which is about the use of artificial intelligence in journalism. And I think there's been there's lots of discussion. There's kind of you know there's two different ways really that that you can think about artificial intelligence in journalism. One is um, there's the AI-assisted content um, creation. And then there's the AI-assisted content consumption, which is the, the kind of personalization of news. Mm. Um, my understanding is that New York Times is not doing the former in terms of using um, artificial intelligence to generate content. And your, um, your comments about the, the importance of the um, quality would yeah. perhaps bear that out. But in terms of artificial intelligence, in terms of con assisting consumption, is that an area that, that you're thinking about from a future perspective? Yeah, I mean, jo Joe Kahn, who's the uh, managing editor of the New York Times, is very, he, he talks about this very well, I think, in that he, he, he's adamant that we will never have um, algorithmic um, selection of, of, of news. There will always be. Mm -hmm. um, people, journalists, editors, who would be deciding where what is important, yeah. making that judgment. And without that, he thinks the New York Times would be neutered. And, and I think he's, yeah. he's, he's right. However, um, you, you, you've, artificial intelligence has so many opportunities. And we're going to be open-eyed and wide-eyed about looking at how it can benefit our readers um, to find ways of better exposing the news content. I mean. 
one of the things about the New York Times um, is just the sheer depth of content that is being produced, and not just in hard news, mm -hmm. but in cultural news and you know, book reviews and food review. I mean, it's just it's endless, <laughs> endlessly fabulous. So you can wallow in it. I, I'm biased, obviously, but it's and how do you how do you curate something which is in all of this 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 richness that is right for you. Mm. So if we can find ways, intelligent ways, um, to do that using, uh, to enhance the experience for, for our readers, great. Mm. But we also need to recognize that one of the reasons why, not the main reason why people come to the New York Times is for judgment and that it's, we're doing, the, we're ten, telling you this is what is important to us and therefore this is what we think you need to know. Yeah. So how do you get that balance right? Yeah. And that, it, that's a kind of another interesting um, thing because you talked about that, um, the, the breadth of the content of the New York Times. And one of the things that struck me as, as really interesting um, is the, the packaging up of the crossword, 20 years of, mm. of crosswords, and turning that into a product yeah. is, is a, you know, from a business perspective, is a really yeah. smart thing to do. You've got latent content that yeah. you, know, you, can, you can bring to the fore. I understand it's doing quite, yeah, quite well. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I, 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 I get very frustrated with the crossword because I'm really bad at it. But, uh, because <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, at it I'm not an American, as you can probably hear. But, and I, I, I struggle with some of the, uh, the nuances. And that, there in, in there, I think there's an opportunity to how can we make this more accessible to non-Americans. Mm. But it's a great business. It's, I, I think it's $27, $28 million, something like that. Mm. 56% increase in subscriptions from 2017 to 2018. Yeah, the, the, the app, um, and we've got a great, really um, great team of, of folk who are, who are puzzlers and uh, who are thinking about how we can keep enhancing that, that product and uh, food for the mind and quizzes. And um, They're a super cool group of people to spend with. I'm, I, I'm, I'm a terrible puzzler. So... Um, yeah, and, and I'm mocked by my wife who says I'm... Anyway, so I'm get going off in, on a tantrum which I shouldn't do, but it's a very nice business. Um, and, and cooking, the, the cooking app is, uh, is... I mean, again, it's, it's sometimes... It's amazing when you think... When people came to us with the ideas that we've got all these recipes in New York Times, part of what we do and have done for years is, is talk about food, and we know that people are interested in food, and we can, we can get people to pay for this. It's really... Really? But it's so competitive. There are so many people out there doing this. We are getting people to pay for it. It's uh, you know, close to, I think, 200,000 people mm. are subscribing to our, our cooking app. Um, and again, it goes to what I was saying before. It's that if you're producing good content, mm. it doesn't have to be just hard news. You can find ways of, of monetizing it. And if you, I mean, the cooking app took three, four, five years of, of building up muscles and understanding the markets and, and, and testing with people. It was open and then, uh, and, and it's off and it's flying. It's doing really well. Yeah. You mentioned before about video as well and, and it's one of the things I wanted to ask you about because you know, when you look at where um, internet usage is going, um, almost three quarters of internet traffic is video. It's, it's, you know, that's largely because of the nature of it. But, but in terms of the proportion of time that people are spending, video, um, it's about a fifth of the total time spent in media consumption. Mm. So it's really high. And, and I was having a bit of a look at where are the other growth areas um, in media and the, the ones that are often talked about, um, video, esports and, and, um, and video gaming, but also um, virtual reality and, and augmented reality, uh, you know, particularly around the predictions around shipping of headsets and, and um, 
technology that enables that. Are these the types of things that the New York Times is thinking about? Or how do you think about the, how, you, how do you make decisions about the things that you're going to test? I, I, I think video has been a real struggle for us. We haven't really cracked video. Um, we, I think in the area where we do video best um, is in opinions. Mm -hmm. We think a thing called OpDocs, um, which is certainly longer form video. Um, but I, th I would be lying if I said that we've, we've really understand, um, we, that we've mastered video mm -hmm. at the New York Times. I think it's something we're still thinking about, struggling with. Um, we recognize that um, video, the power of video as, as a medium, um, again, when it can enhance stories. Um, and that's where I think it's interesting. Mm -hmm. So, and VR too. V VR, and a good example of this is a, a, a while back we, we did this um, magazine story uh, called The Dispossessed, I think it was, and it was f focusing on three um, teenage girls that were in refugee camps, in, in three different refugee camps in different parts of the world. And it was a very harrowing story, and it was, but it was presented in the Sunday magazine, but with the Sunday magazine came um, a Google uh, VR glasses, and you, if you downloaded an app, you, and you, halfway through the story, you were invited to, 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 to look at this uh, virtual reality film. Um, and we did this in partnership with, with Google, and it was remarkable experience because when you, as you're reading this really powerful piece of journalism, but in, in old-fashioned print, mm. and then you, you, you stopped and you put in your thing, you put on your cardboard um, headset. You were suddenly in the camp. Mm. So you're reading about these girls, but you were walking in their shoes around the camps, and you were looking around, and you, you, you could almost smell what it was like to be in the camp. And it was just a very powerful way of connecting with readers. And it, for me, it was a very good example of, again, enhancing the, the storytelling ability. Yeah. And that's, again, the exciting thing about video. When can video, at the right moments, make that story and help the reader explain. And it, it's graphics, mm. the, graphics are hugely important today um, when, when, when getting across stories effectively, um, especially on mobile phone platforms. So it's, it's that cocktail of, of medium that I was talking about earlier with, which, with technologies. Now, how, how can we use them to express our journalism mm. in ways that really appeal to people, and especially the younger generation mm. who Visually, th these things are very important. So video is going to be important. Yeah. We don't pretend to have cracked it, um, but but we will continue working yeah. at it. Yeah. Well, it will be interesting to see the uh, the launch of the, um, the TV the show. Yeah. The TV yeah. show. Yeah. 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 And, and um, yeah. it's a great way to test it. Now I'm conscious of the time, and I know we've got a really great audience here. So at this point, I thought it'd be great to open it up to questions from people here. I'm sure there are so many questions. I know Simon's got one about the Trump bump. I'm sure there are lots of others. Um, uh, Mara's got a microphone, and Elliot's got a microphone. We might start over here at, at the front. Thank you. Please just um, say who you are and, um, and ask a question. Hi, uh, David Milliken with AFP News Agency here in Sydney. Uh, kind of follow up on your Australian operations. You talked about opening the bureau here in kind of a traditional sense of covering the country for New York Times readers and viewers in the States or anywhere else. But there also seems to be a pretty significant kind of audience acquisition activity going on, there are Facebook groups and newsletters and, and yeah. a level of coverage which kind of, I mean, there can be several articles a day done about Australia. Which, yeah. So is that is that a kind of a model, a new model for 
the New York Times, is it working, and are you doing the same kind of things in other yeah. countries? Yes, yeah, so thank you for the question. Um, when we, when we um, a few years, uh, three years ago, four years ago, we, we, we sat down together, the executive team in, in New York, uh, with, with Dean Backe, the editor, and we asked ourselves, where do we need to go? Um, what's up? What's up? What for the next two or three years? Uh, we need the conclusion being very quickly to make a long story short. We needed to double our digital revenue um, to eight hundred million dollars, and then we set up a group of people to think about well, how are we going to do that, and and what role would, should international be playing in that? So we set up something called NYT Global, which I, I oversee, um, specifically tasked with trying to grow our international business, and and we quite quickly concluded we wanted to go after the. The, the, the lowest hanging fruit on the tree. These I wanted my, my life to be easier than. So, the obvious place to really focus uh, was where we ha already had a lot of highly engaged readers, and they were not surprisingly in the English speaking markets Canada, the UK, and Australia. Um, and uh, so, so, in Australia, we already knew there were a lot of people who were very interested in the New York Times for a, a whole bunch of reasons, a lot of them about really what I alluded to earlier, this, the, the connection with the United States, interest in what's happening there, heightened, of course, by, by the circus in Washington with Trump. Um, but also, Australians genuinely curious about what's happening around the world and their place in the world. So we saw it as an opportunity. We knew that we had highly engaged readers in, in Australia, and that by doing what you just said, you know, these, these kind of experiments of, of how to connect with the Australia, curious Australian community. And we call, that's how I address our, our total addressable market. We look at people that are internationally curious. Um, that's how we define them. Um, and there are a lot of those folks here. So that we're trying to engage, get them engaged in the New York Times so much so that they think, you know, I really want to, this is worth paying for. And Australia is our third largest market outside of the UK in terms of, of, of subscribers. And it's growing healthily. Mm -hmm. That's good to know. How long have you been here now? How long have you been here in, in Sydney? To yeah. 24 hours. No. no in Australia. Um, <laughs> we've been here since uh, 2017. So yeah, when was so it? So pretty new, yeah. May 2017. Yeah, yeah. So that's, pr that's pretty message. strong growth for that period of time. Yes, thank you. Chris Skinner, a consumer of international news services such as Washington Post, The Guardian, Japan Times, Eurasia Review, all of which provide a, a very uh, helpful insight into the world events uh, from an Australian perspective. Yes, sir. Um, New York Times, I've always regarded as being a cut above all of those as uh, more authoritative, uh, greater research and so on. But do you feel constrained compared with the online media in terms of uh, vulnerability to defamation and other uh, privacy and uh, confidentiality issues uh, in the courts compared with uh, Facebook, for example? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, thank you for the question. It's a great question. And um, one, of, one of the challenges of, of, of being very new to this, the New York Times company is very new to this. The New York Times company is an American business, and it's, it's, it's the, the way it's set up is as an American business, and, and working within that those legal constraints, that legal platform. So as we're now, the, my colleagues, the general counsel is a fa fabulous lady called Diane Brayton. Um, I spent quite a lot of time with Diane talking about the challenges of 
going of become being genuinely an international player. We want to be an international player. It's complicated. It's often messy. And there's lots of regulatory issues that we need to think of, be thinking about all the time. Um, and it's something we have to we have to grapple with. But the reality is is that um, uh, we don't really have a choice. We set our stall by saying we want to have 10 million digital subscribers. I mentioned earlier the, the newsroom now 1,600 folk, um, expensive. In order to in a world where print no longer exists, I think print's going to exist for a long time. But our assumption, built-in assumption, is one day it will go away, and we have to sustain a newsroom of 1,600 folks without without that. And to do that, we have to have a much bigger presence internationally in terms of paying subscribers. So we don't really have a choice. So we have, it's something we're going to have to get much better at. But it is a concern, um, and it's complex, and it can be expensive. Um, but it, it, it's, it's kind of table stakes now. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm more concerned. It is, it is something that's it's increasingly a drum that... Gets bang, it gets banged and gets banged louder than it did before. The thing that I'm actually more worried about long term is the, the balkanization of the internet and what that might mean to the New York Times. So right now in China, we, we're blocked. We have been blocked for about five years. Um, India is beginning to sniff around regulation, which may create its own. So you can begin to imagine, I don't know how many of you have read 1984, but if you haven't read it, or I'm guessing quite a lot of you probably read or was 1984, but reread it now because it's so prescient. But the way that in that book there's the, the world is divided into Oceania, these, these, these blocks, can begin to see that happening quite easily. So what does that mean to the New York Times? And, and our whole thing is about without fear or favor journalism. Without fear or favor journalism means you're going to butt up against people that really don't want you around. It's happening all the time. So it's, but it's price of doing business. Uh, Roger Coleman, I've got a query on expanding the paywall, paywall expectations. Um, and to give you the start point, um, when you're all print, you could have a casual newsstand sale and you get paid 25% in Australia away to the news agent. Now which has got only one fixed payment system, which is the annual or monthly subscription. So what's the revenue potential you think you're missing by not going into a, a per-story a pricing point or something like that. So I wouldn't mind asking that question. And then you brushed on uh, this second question on how regional media is dead. Could you give us some idea of, of where you think in the ladder of local, regional, state-based, national and international media where the proper trends or the potential is most likely to lie? Wow. Um, on the first question... I, I think that, that there is going to be a whole panoply of different pricing mechanisms, and we're finding that now um, where within, in the digital world. Um, where, so we think, we think a lot about this, something called ARPU, average reader per user, sort of, sort of like obsession with this average reader per user thing. Um, I think what we, our experience is likely to be that we're going to have quite divergent strategies from domestically and internationally, um, whereby we're going to be looking at a market and, and the price points. So you take India, for example, where there's the, 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 the price points for media are very, very sl um, slim in, in the analog, in the print world. Um, and that 
So, and there's, so there's very little appetite at the moment for people to pay. But then you've got to think about the, the younger demographics coming up. And one of the interesting things, it's amazing we haven't spoken about Trump, but one of the <laughs> interesting things about Trump is, is that um, he, he drove a lot of interest for us. Um, but actually, what people forget is that at the same time, there's been a, people's habits and way they pay for, for, for content is changing. So many more people now are much more relaxed about paying for content. And that's been driven by Netflix, by Spotify, and those organizations. So and we're kind of riding along behind that. Um, but we're finding, if you look at Netflix and Spotify, they have very different pricing in different markets. Mm. Um, and I think we're going to, we are already moving in that direction. So I'm, I don't think I'm fully answering your question, but it's about being, being very attentive to the, the, the internet allows us to, to have price differentiation. But to give some, if you could just expand on that, uh, pre-internet, what was your casual sales percentage relative to home delivery subscription percentage? Depended on the market, sir. So, I mean, in, in the UK, um, which is very much a newsstand market, 80% right. of our sales would, would be on the newsstand. So this is a revenue you're missing if you don't have it per per article or per day. So my, but micropayments is something that we're interested in. There hasn't really been a model that's worked so far, but very open to, to, to micropayments. We actually invested in a company called Blendle, uh, which is a Dutch company, which is a, a micropayment company. Um, and we're, we're very interested to see how that develops. Um, uh, and and I, I personally think that the, part of the future will be micropayments. And for us... Sorry? Um, unfortunately, I'm quite pessimistic about regional publications, um, only because of what I see. Uh, and I, I, I stress this is really, I think, really dangerous. Um, but I also I sit on the board of a, a, an East African media company called Nations Media Group. Um, and they have newspapers in, in Tanzania and, and uh, in Kenya, um, Rwanda, Uganda. And they're really struggling. Um, they're, they're struggling because of this, the, the economic um, trends that, um, that we, we're all aware of. But they also, that's compounded by political pressure from governments who are making it very difficult to do journalism and dangerous to do journalism. Um, so in many parts of the world, you've got this dual... Um, trend, both negative, of massive disruption of their business models, um, where and so many are, f are, are reacting by disinvesting in journalism. They're being forced to, to just cut jobs. You can't cut to success. You just can't do that. Um, but they're also, it's also compounded by, by uh, the rise of aut autocratic reg regimes making it dangerous to do journalism. That's terrible. So, uh, so I mean, look, this varies in different parts of the world, but you, you've asked me a big question, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm generally a bit pessimistic about regional news in, in, from a global perspective. Um, from an international perspective, I'm much more optimistic. Um, I'd just like to... Oh, I'm Sally Situ, the International Media Advisor at the University. Uh, I'd just like to follow up on your pursuits um, into China. Um, I noticed that the Times has a Chinese translated um, edition as well. Um, has, have you been seeing some growth in that area? And, uh, and obviously you said that um, 
it's now blocked in China. Are you still trying to pursue, trying to unblock? Mm. Thank you for the question. Um, yeah, we, we, we launched a, a Chinese language site um, about five, six years ago. Um, and when we did that, um, we, we, it, I mean, it was actually naive because um, it was always, frankly, obvious that we were going to get blocked because when you do the sort of journalism we do, um, we're going to upset some people in China. And we did quite quickly. Within three months, we were, we were blocked. David Barboza wrote a piece about the then um, uh, president and... Um, he got a Pulitzer Prize for the piece. It was a fabulous piece, but we were blocked. And we, we, I think we thought back then that we would, we would have these problems, but they would, we would get unblocked. Um, so we would be, have this sort of slightly conflictual relationship and up and down. It was very successful commercially. We quickly built um, a, a very big audience, close to 12 million, I think it was. Um, and, uh, but, but Xi has made it very clear that he doesn't like that, and he sees us as a threat, and it's got more and more difficult. And so the latter part of your question, I don't think we're going to get unblocked in the, in the foreseeable future, but we are going to, cons we're going to um, persist with our Chinese language site because there is a very important Chinese diaspora out there. Um, the site is, is well read by that Chinese diaspora. Um, and we're looking at the, a lot of our interest in China was looking at China as a market in which we could expand. I think now we see China as, 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 as a story we need to explain. And so, I mean, it is going to be, frankly, the story which needs explanation. We've got great people in China. We're, we've got a, a very, very good bureau in Beijing, in Shanghai. Um, Chris Buckley is an Australian. He's our, our bureau chief there. He's, he's a fabulous journalist doing incredible work. And, but it's a huge, huge story. Um, and it's only going to get bigger, mark my words. Uh, and, and so our role is to make sure that we're, we have... We're, the challenge is that when we're, we're kicked out of reporting on China. But I, don't, I think the Chinese really understand that it's important that we are there to explain China to the world um, in a, in a, in a, without fear or favor. I think they see the value in that. Um, and the China site you, is, is also a mechanism. So thinking about the China site not as something where we can um, commercially uh, grow within that mainland, but how can we use that site to um, help report China to the world? So it's, it, it is going to be the story. Mm, that's a great question. I think there's a question here. Omara, Clive McConaughey, I'm a full-time board director, and I should probably point out former global publisher in the Economist Group yeah. in a prior Good. life. I'm interested in your views on the newsstand, because in an increasingly digital world, of course, and the inevitability of um, digital transformation, newsstand still plays a role in terms of share of sight and share of voice. And I'd probably be one who said, I'm surprised you hadn't had a bureau here earlier, yeah. as opposed to why you're here. Um, but the Financial Times, for example, transformed in Australia mm. by actually putting their paper. I don't mm. know if they're even concerned about sales, to be perfectly honest. They just stuck it in the, mm. in the newsstands. What role, particularly in an international perspective, do you see that for New York Times? Yeah, I think print, um, the, the sort of the marketing presence of print is, is important and, and the visibility on newsstands. And for me, that, that, that tunnel, or the travel tunnel of, you know, the people are frequently traveling so how, how do you get to them where they are in the hotels and the, in the airports? And, and that? 
that visibility is that constant. We're there. We're with you. We we we're holding your hand as you as you as you're traveling around. It's it's really important. And and our international print business is um, is is actually remarkably robust. We grew our international print business last year in profitability. Um, we actually grew our circulation in in the Asia region last year. Um, so and I think it's going to be around for a while. Um, Australia. Um, so, but but the reason why we grew our profitability, our international business, which, which and I'm I'm a print guy, I was published in the Herald Tribune, so I'm very very you know attentive to print. Um, I'm attentive to it, maybe ruthless reasons too, because it's generating good cash, mm -hmm. and that cash we need to invest in our digital business because that is where our future is. Um, but but to your question about specifically about Australia and and are we going to print him? We going to have a newsstand presence here? I doubt it in print because unless we can make the economics work and that means profit I'm not going to make a loss producing printing a newspaper here for it's very difficult for me to show an ROI or justify an ROI in marketing terms um, and I would prefer to, to make those take a, take any money I was going to invest and invest it in in digital growth and acquisition than, 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 than in newsprint however if we can find, if we, as we just have in Malaysia, for example, a model which allows us to print profitably, we will do so. Um, but that has, that, that has uh, eluded us so far in Australia. In the USA, besides Washington Post, what are your other main competitors? Wall Street Journal, are the obvious ones, but we, we, we have competitors everywhere. I mean, it's um, it, it's it's platforms. It's uh, I mean, luxury advertising is really important for us. So all the luxury. I mean, we're competitors all over the place. Um, but the traditional competitors are in the international landscape. You know, the Venerable Economist, um, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal. Actually, interesting about the Wall Street Journal and print. Going back to the earlier question, is um, since the Wall Street Journal stop printing in, in Asia. Um, that's actually benefited our, our, our print business. Um, so I mean, one of the reasons why I think we've grown our circulation is because we've picked up readers. Um, and, I, and, and I hear a lot of people in the, in the, in the, in the Asian theater saying, you know, they, 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 they think that the, Wall Street, that the fact that they're no longer in print goes to what we were saying before is, is, is bad for them and their brand. Um, so that sort of, sort of reinforces what we were saying earlier. But it's, there's a broad church. But in the United States, it's, um, it's primarily the Wall Street Journal and, and the Washington Post. Simon, Simon wants to ask his burning question about the Trump bomb. No, no. 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 Um, well, I could, but I, um, you didn't mention The Guardian mm. um, among your list of competitors. And they're here in Australia um, with, a, with a digital-only uh, and they're also in the United States. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, and, and so I'm wondering if you've got any reflections about sort of the way you are orienting your Australian presence versus the way they might be, or any reflections on how they're faring with their, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the approach a global media brand brings when you go into a market like them coming here, you coming here, or them perhaps giving your background with 
imagine quite familiar with them from the UK, yeah. how, how they're travelling in the US. I, I think the Guardian's doing a remarkable job. I think it's um, a very good outfit. Um, but we are, I think Kat Biner, the editor there, and David, is the, the, the CEO, is, uh, are really, I mean, they, they, I think they're going to they're going to get close to break even this year, if not at break even, which was their goal. So they, they're going to need a new North Star once they hit that. Um, and I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of The Guardian. I, I consume it every day. Um, but we have a different model from The Guardian. We, we, we have not come to Australia to try and replicate The Guardian model. We don't. That's not what we're, we're about. The Guardian have come here to be, feel to be very competitive on the local scale. We don't see ourselves like that. We, 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 we think it's very important to be here. We think it's very important to report from here. Um, but we don't see it as our, as our role is to, to get into the, the weeds of, of, of local journalism. Um, I think the stories that we want to tell here need to resonate to all of our readers in the United States and around the world. So we're, we're seeking out stories that we think of, are of interest to our global audience. It's a different model to that of The Guardian. The Guardian set their stall back creating, and by the way, very successfully, a large, a very large audience of folk. We want to get a large audience of folks to pay for our content. And they're, they're, they're asking people to pay in different ways. Now, I, mean, I, I, I personally think that The Guardian are going to need to get to say, look, to put up a wall. I mean, they, I don't pay and I don't give money to the government. My wife does, and I just... But um, she, um, so it's working. It's working, and it's. But but to go the next step, what are, what are they going to do? And I, I personally think get people to just charge people. Pay, I would pay if I was forced to. I would pay, um, and and I think they need to do that because it goes back to what I was saying before. And I keep harping on about you. You need to invest in the journalism, and break even is. I don't think. Now, Scott Trust, they may have a very different point of view on this, but looking at it from the outside, and I, I'm not in the inside, so looking at it from the outside, I think that they, they need a, to get a beyond break-even um, to invest in the journalism, and it's mutually reinforcing to repeat what I said earlier. One, just while we're waiting for I wanted to ask you about um, an investment that the New York Times have made a, um, a few years ago in Wirecutter. Yeah. Because it's, um, I can I can see why in terms of reach and and, um, uh, and new eyeballs coming into it, but I I also can see that it's been um, successful in terms of revenue growth. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that that's an interesting kind of direction. Yeah. It, it kind of builds on that um, what you were just saying about wanting to go after a quality audience who have the propensity to pay. Sure. Um, so, work out of the, I don't know how many people know, but it's really a consumer site. So, if you're, if you're interested in buying a, a new 27-inch TV, um, what's the best one? Um, and we bought that business because, actually, it was the newsroom that were really keen that we, we get into that business because they were so impressed by the rigor of wire cutters, um, researchers, and they felt that there, there, there was a, a close kinship with the sort of journalism we do um, in, in the rigor of the report. So, and it is successful. It's a growing business. It's, um, we're finding ways of integrating slowly, but gradually integrating it into, the, uh, into the, the website as well in terms of the experience. If you're interested in buying this, here is the work. So it's a, it, 
we, when we, it, it's one of those bolt-on acquisitions where, which is serving the main site. Yeah. You know, it's an added, it's an added benefit. It's a nice standalone business in itself, but it also can, can help our, our readers um, because we're confident that the quality of Wirecutter is rigorous. There, it's really, really independent. There's no outside factors, mm. and that's really so that it's very credible, mm. and we feel comfortable with that. So, um, I think it's a nice business. Hi, I'm Nairi Palmer. Um, I'm really interested in U.S. politics, and a friend of mine actually, during a conversation, said, "Oh, have you tried the New York Times, the Daily?" Um, and that was definitely the gateway drug that got me hooked enough to get me a subscription. Great. And I was wondering about your strategy in getting new readers um, within Australia and how you market, because you can't always rely on your readers and your followers to be the pushers for your product. Um, so what's your strategy in getting people hooked? Yeah, I mean, we've got a long way to go. I mean, that's the exciting thing is, um, and also the frustrating thing is, is I think we've just scratched the surface here. We've, only, we've been here not for very long, um, but I don't think our marketing has been particularly sophisticated here yet, frankly. Uh, we need to know much more about Australian readers, and we will need to spend money here above the line um, to, to, to get the brand across. I mean, if I walk down the street here and I ask people, do you know the New York Times? I think most people would say yes. If I ask them the next question, is it relevant? Do you feel it's relevant for you? Probably not, certainly not relevant enough to pay. And so you can make a strong case that we should be investing heavily in branding now. Um, we've resisted that. I've actually resisted that as well because despite being the international guy, would you imagine I would want to do that? Because I don't think what I was trying, saying before that we're quite there yet in terms of the user experience. So we're going to invest a lot of money above the line um, in connecting, trying to demonstrate why the New York Times is relevant to readers here. Um, I want them, when they're coming to the site, to really feel, feel that relevance. Um, and I, we need to do more work under the hood to, to fix that. And then when we spend, spend well, and it'd be much more efficacious. Uh, in, in, so, and when we when we market, I mean, I think that we, in, in America we're spending, I know, $30, $35 million, I think it'd be this year on brands, the New York Times brand in the United States, and it's around the trust, truth, truth campaign, we call it. Um, but he, that, that, that campaign, I'm not sure would really work uh, outside of the United States in many markets, because a lot of people would, would say, what does that mean? And, and it's closely associated with the New York Times in America, but in a way that it wouldn't work necessarily here. I think what we need to focus on here is the impact of our journalism. And I was really interested in a study we had. We had a group of young undergraduates working with us in London for, for six weeks last, last year. And it was a really fun project. They were from some of the best universities in the UK. And they were asked, you know, how, do, how can the New York Times talk to you in ways that you feel is comfortable, uh, that, that connects with you. And they, 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 they self-organized in a way that was fascinating, by the way. Um, and they, they, they did their piece of research which they pulled together from their own social groups within, within two days. Um, and it was super, super interesting. What, what they, the more that they dug into the times, the more excited they got about the impact of the journalism. So that it actually is making a difference. That 
having two reporters go into the Yemen and a photographer go into, go into the Yemen made a difference by the, the a senator on the floor of the House quoting the New York Times, showing a photograph from the New York Times, changed the U.S. Senate's position on the war in Yemen. Or our reporting on Foxconn in China made Apple change their supply chain practices. So Apple just won an award for their supply chain practices. You can go all the way back to that reporting. That's what young people get excited about the New York Times, that it's actually making a difference. Um, so that's, the, that's, I think, the hooks that we've got to get across to people in ways that are, are powerful. It's too far. I mean, so there's bottom of the funnel work of, of the people that are already there, and that's where most of our focus is right now, is, is, is how do we get those engaged, talk to those engaged readers, and then there's more work which we need to do, which is get to that, 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 that the top of the funnel, new students, younger people, and get, get them engaged in our journalism, get them to spend time with it, and then you, as they come down, then you get more sophisticated in your conversion tactics mm. as, as, you, as you pull them down through the funnel. Here and then, and then you, yeah. Just wait. Oh, Elliot, just over here. Sorry. Hi, my name is Raphael Ben-Manasha from Telon Medium. Uh, Media, sorry. Um, just on the topic of the Trump bump, um, with your international readers, do they, in the age of the Trump bump, do they still look to the New York Times as a source of credible criticism? Or to what extent do they feel that the Trump bump has, um, I guess, influenced journalism in a corrupting kind of manner? So are we, are we, are we the voice of the opposition? Are we biased? Is that...? Yeah, like how uh, the attitudes of international readers change in terms of the way that they perceive New York, um, New York Times as journalism? It's a great question. Um, first of all, the Trump bump, I mean, we clearly benefited from... from every time Trump was after the New York Times, not just us, but you know, the Post or Vanity Fair, um, you'd see a commensurate rise in subscriptions. So you know, bring it on, Mr. Trump. The more you, you, you accuse us of being um, failing or fake, um, that, that, was, that was actually good for us. Um, but but the, the, the last year, the, the, the Trump bump was was a period of time where we, we saw this benefit. And that's because you've got a rump of people who uh, were sitting on the fence. They were going to likely to pay at some stage anyway. And it just pushed them over. And, and the, the, what I said earlier about the, 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 the comfort in paying for content online was becoming easier and easier because of Netflix and Spotify. So it kind of made people flop over. But last year, we, internationally, we were long after the Trump bump, we were, we were actually still growing uh, at a pace uh, slightly faster than the Trump bump. So I don't think we should ex exaggerate it. But to your question, which is perhaps deeper, about the sense of are we seen, is there, have people changed their perceptions about the New York Times? I think the answer is probably some have. Um, we, we really try, we do not want to be seen as the paper of opposition. Um, we want to be seen as, um, as a news organization that is doing thorough 
truthful, without fear or favor reporting. In the digital age, um, in, the print, in, 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 the, in the print world, you have, there was a, a very distinct place for opinions. It was marked out. And in the building, our, our own building, they're on a separate floor. They don't talk, the opinion team do not talk to the news team. It's, it's a, there's a physical distance. Um, and th that, that was intentional. And in the paper, in the world of paper, opinion was very clearly marked out. This is now, you are now in the, in, in the realm of opinion. This is not news, this is opinion. In the digital world, it's quite, they often get, the two get conflated. Mm. So it is true, the New York Times has a roster of opinion writers that tend to lean left, center or left. Um, now, we're very aware of that, and we're working hard to recruit smart writers that can give a, a more of a right perspective. So Brett Stevens is an obvious example. He was a Wall Street Journal columnist, Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist, and he's now uh, a columnist for the New York Times. And we will continue to seek other voices for our opinion pages. But there is a real challenge in the, in the digital era of making it clear to people that this is opinion. There's news and there's opinion. Um, and I will argue until I die that our, our news team are incredibly rigorous about getting to the truth um, and wherever that will take them. And at the moment, it takes them in a way that suggests that, which is not maybe favorable to people that like the Trump administration. We've got time for one last question. I'm going to go to Brendan. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Brendan. I'll go where the microphone is. Thank you. Sorry about that. Oh, no worries. Um, uh, I was just interested in when you were talking about the demonstrating your relevance to local audiences before and how that fits in with your answer to the question about your comparison to the Guardian newsroom where they've made a heavy investment in building out a local newsroom here and you didn't want to do that. M my question to just uh, like knit those two statements together is, is the value prop then just... Australians are interested in the world, um, like you were talking about right at the start, and so your relevance to them is, you know, an idea that we're good global citizens, you want to know about the world, the New York Times is doing doing the, the best journalism there, therefore it's relevant to you, and that's where you see the the, the growth in your, yeah. your subscriber base down here? Yeah, I think I think so. Uh, it's, it's a bit of, yes, although what, what I think in... in uh, let me talk about the UK for a second, um, or, or France, and because it's relevant to, I think, what our approach is here. But So in the UK right now, as you probably hear, and there's, with, there's a bunch of people deciding the fate of the UK who are non-British non people, 27 European countries right now, in a, in a room like this somewhere in, in Brussels. Um, but for the last three years, we've been consumed in the UK by one subject, um, and it's been a bun fight in the media. Um, now, what, how we look at that is we want to report on this huge story, but we want to do it in a way that is not in the same realm as everybody else. We want to kind of take a different 20,000-foot view. We don't really have a dog in this game. We want to try and be independent and give a different perspective to this and do it in a way that is, excuse the word, but sort of Timesian. Um, 
And I think we've done a pretty good job of that. We've pissed off a lot of the local media, by the way, because they don't, haven't liked that. But I think, I think our journalism on Brexit has been really good because it's been a different, given, it gives a different perspective from 20,000 feet. Um, similarly, in, in, in France, that, so we, we want to we be able to cover local stories, pick stories, but then give a perspective that you wouldn't get from the local media. I mean, going back to the UK, the Grenfell, the terrible Grenfell fire tragedy. I don't know if you remember that. This 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 building that went up. Um, we we the New York Times did a, a, a three-page story, deep dive on on that story, which no British newspaper did in any shape or form. So, and it was a really really powerful um, uh, story about the cladding, and then it went into the suppliers, and in ways that just the British media hadn't done. And I think that's what we want to do. Um, how can we bring our reporting resources and the way, and, and the way we think around stories, um, pick those that we think are also going to be of interest to our global readers, but are going to give a different perspective locally? So. Great. That's a good place to end, I think. I'm conscious of everybody's time because um, we're just on finishing time. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming today. Thank you, Stephen. For uh, thank you. Being thank you for coming on. It's been a really great conversation.